Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 50th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Ben Nye, CEO at Turbonomic, one of Boston's anchor tech companies, which has raised over $100 million in funding. Ben has been successful in the tech industry from both sides of the equation. As an executive, he helped take Precise Software public, which was later acquired by Veritas Software. As an investor at Bain Capital Ventures, he's been recognized multiple times by Forbes Midas List as one of the top VC investors in the U.S. His investments have included many companies that you've likely heard of, like LinkedIn, Rapid7, DocuSign, SolarWinds, StackDriver, and many others. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Ben's background from the early days when he started out as a salmon fishing guide to how he got into the tech industry, his experience as one of the top VCs in the country, building out the infrastructure software practice at Bain Capital, all the details in terms of the evolution of Turbonomic and their platform that delivers workload automation for hybrid cloud environments, his thoughts on sales and figuring out which model is right for your company, why references are the most important part of the interview process, plus a lot more. And as you might have guessed, Turbonomic is hiring. They are in hyper-growth mode, so they are hiring across all job functions, sales, engineering, you name it. They are especially looking for developers who have experience building software that runs in public cloud. To learn more about all their openings, check out their biz page at venturefizz.com backslash Turbonomic. Okay, quick side note, and one more moment before we jump into this awesome interview. As I previously stated, this is episode 50 of the Venture Fizz podcast. That is truly, truly amazing. So I want to take a moment to say thank you to all of our amazing guests for taking the time to share their stories, and of course, a larger-than-life thank you to our audience for listening. It's been a lot of fun, and there's more to come, so stay tuned. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Ben. Ben, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Keith. Thanks for having me. So I always like to start these conversations with kind of the foundation level level of your background. So where did you grow up? What did your parents do for work? Uh, I'm a local. Uh, Grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts. Uh, My dad is a professor and uh, my mom uh, was a gallery owner. So art was her passion. And just, you know, kind of reading through, um, you know, different, uh, you know, spots about your background uh it it seemed like you were very competitive in in high school you were a three-sport athlete so sports a big piece of of growing up uh yeah i think you know team sports so the thing i like is uh being part of a team uh, taking on a challenge working hard and uh and making everybody better so yeah it's definitely for me it was everything with a helmet so it was was (laughs) football hockey and lacrosse uh i'm hoping there's no lasting uh uh, problem associated with that but uh but it was certainly fun growing up yeah that's i mean i so i played football and lacrosse and they're just great games and obviously very you know team oriented i picked up on the hockey in the middle so uh three great sports uh and then you know in terms of your studies you went on to harvard and, and played lacrosse there too so um, if you could talk about kind of, you know, your career after you graduated, you know, how you got your start. Uh, first job after college was a fishing guide. I was a salmon fishing guide for fly fishing in Alaska for Pacific salmon. So um, I, I'm not sure where that leads all of our uh, listeners. But um, but my belief is what it was really about is the reason you hire a guide is to get better yield, right? Catch more fish in that case. Mm-hmm. Everything you do, if you can make people better there's always a need for more of that, right? And so um, whether it's my time in the government, uh, federal government working in the U.S. Treasury Service, or whether it was in uh, 
uh, various startups or at Bain Capital as an investor, the goal was always to find and build the best management teams, the best uh, performance that you could do, and then see you know great things uh, would happen. And uh, and so Turbonomic was one of those. Uh, it was a company that had huge potential, killer idea, big market, and uh, and all we had to do was uh, obviously provide some capital, a little bit of leadership, and uh, and build the team. And uh, since that time, it's been off to the races. We've had three years now on the Inc. 5000. I mean, to do that once is good and hard, twice rare, and three times is extraordinarily rare. Um, we've just made our third year in a row uh, of improving position on the Forbes Cloud 100. And, um, and then obviously, we've had a, a number of other sort of industry accolades as we've grown to over 2,100 customers and uh, about 20, a little over 20% of the Fortune 500. And I mean, Turbonomic is an amazing company, and I want to go deep into Turbonomic in terms of what you guys are doing and kind of the future. But even going back, so I did notice you worked for the U.S. Department of Treasury, but then you got into uh, more on the investment side, and then you know ended up joining you know a, a tech company. So what was that evolution like? <laughs> That's a great question, Keith. Thanks. Um, so Treasury was was fantastic. Um, I, I was pretty passionate about the need to uh, control our fiscal finances in this country. And so um, at the time, it looks looks back as a small number now, but we had uh, deficits that were running $270 billion a year, 4.7% of GDP. And I, I thought that was relatively unsustainable. And I cared enough that I said, I'm going to go and, and see if we can do something about it. And um, joined uh, the early days of uh, the Treasury under fellow by the name Secretary Lloyd Benson and then later Bob Rubin. And um, the neat thing is we were able to develop a plan that actually through the combination of uh, expenditure cuts and tax increases, we were able to, uh, to actually get the budget to surplus and then began paying down debt. And that was a really big deal. And um, it was an opportunity to work with exceptional people. I mean, really, really high achievers and, um, and get alignment around a goal. And that goal, um, was to restore the, the fiscal balance of the U.S. government. It's a pretty big goal. Um, with a whole bunch of people and some good luck and, and the improvement in the economy, we were able to pull that off. And uh, the only thing that made me a little bit sad was uh, to see that the next administration afterwards completely blew it up, and it's frankly never been back in the black since. Um, but that was certainly uh, the first evolution. I then moved uh, from there to become an investor, and... Um, and that was, uh, it was very, very uh, difficult. You move from very much of a macro focus to now a micro focus and needing to really build cash flow models till two in the morning and learn what EBITDA and things like that were. And, and uh, my, my job as an investor was to make sure that I never had to ask the same question twice. And so I had a uh, mentor, his name was Cabell Williams, and he, he was a wonderful investor, taught me. And um, and one of my my main things was to make sure that I absorbed everything he said and applied it and um, and learned from each experience and interaction with him. And that led to uh, a really successful time at Allied, built a number of uh, interesting companies, but always in the low tech arena. And uh, and then one tried to hire me and uh, I said no. And turned out that became uh, it's called AppNet and it became uh, Commerce One and it was probably a monster payday that uh, that I had skipped. And I said, well, the next time I get a call from a tech company, I'm at least going to uh, pay attention. 
I remember Commerce One. I remember them from back then. It was a big one at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So anyway, so I took uh, the meeting when I got a call and um, ended up deciding to move back to Boston. And uh, part part of that was really driven by family. Um, And we had our first child, but it was also an interesting opportunity in the tech arena. And that company, we were able to grow up. uh, We took it public. It was called Precise Software. And it was the first uh, distributed system, APM, Application Performance Management Company. And, uh, and it did very well. And we ultimately sold it to um, a large top 10 software company called Veritas Software. Sure. Um, and from there, uh, I got a call one day uh, from Bain Capital saying, would you like to come back and be an investor again? And so I joined Bain uh, back in 2004. And, and what was your thought going back into investing? And it, it, from what I read, it sounded like you you built and ran the infrastructure software practice. So what was the kind of the thesis behind your investing there? So it was kind of fun. You know, when the Bing guys called me, I I, uh, frankly thought I was going to be going to run another software company. There's one that I actually had to uh, disengage from uh, the opportunity. But but the logic was as follows. They're they're very data driven, which is which is an awesome methodology in terms of uh, finding insights that others would perhaps miss. And um, and I think a unique insight does help drive the quality of return that you can aspire to achieve. But the second thing was, here's this company, Bain Capital, with with you know they owned all kinds of major um, private equity investments, Dunkin' Donuts, Burger King, Toys R Us, and so on. And all of them run on applications, and all of them have infrastructures and data centers, even cloud now today. And the only question I was asking is, okay, so wait a minute, so. Nobody has an infrastructure focus here for software, and uh, and I'm allowed to call on those guys uh, as a sale. <laughs> like even I could figure that one out. I right. Thought, okay. This is, this is a pretty good opportunity, and so we started out. First investment was one called Network Intelligence, and um, that one uh, we grew up and were able to sell for about four and a half times in 15 months, and then came Solar Winds, and then came a whole bunch of others, and and. Um, and one of the things that was neat was the ability to test my thesis on the value that the products they offered could could bring um, with these uh, infrastructure uh, uh, managers of the companies that Bain actually owned. And so there was a unique insight. You could test it with the actual practitioner. And, um, and then the rest was just making sure that we built the right teams and the right opportunity. And, and lo and behold, it Kind of worked out. And how did you build your, your network from an investment point of view? Because it's not like you were just making investments local to Boston. I mean, you were all, you know, your portfolio was spread throughout the country. Um, yeah, I, I think if you focus, you know, to me, the the strength of investing is is benefited, particularly if you go early stage by focusing in a vertical market, hence the infrastructure of software investing as opposed to just broad based investing. Right. When you go later stage, it's much more of a financial modeling question. What do you pay? What are your returns? What can you do to improve margins? That kind of thing. But when you're uh, when you're trying to figure out what's the next generation technology in something, you really want to focus on a sector. And so what I found is that um, while it might look broad based in terms of geography, and, and indeed it is, there are certain cities or MSAs that are particularly um deep in sort of certain areas of technology. So Boston is an awesome tech center. Uh, obviously, California, Northern California, um, Austin, Texas, um, you know, and then you could find pockets, you know, in other areas, uh, take uh, uh, New York or um, 
Kansas City even, if you, if you had the right understanding of the vertical market segment, then you could evaluate the company no matter where they were. And just my general rule was the earlier stage company, the closer to home you want to invest because the more recruiting, the more involvement, the more check-ins, et cetera, the later stage companies, the ones that actually had customers, cash flow, product market fit, growth, scaling, et cetera, challenges, those you could manage on a, on a more distant basis, hence like a LinkedIn DocuSign and those kinds of guys. And, you know, I mean, you look at the portfolio of investments that you've made where I mean, a lot of these companies went public, SolarWinds, LinkedIn, Rapid7, DocuSign, and then, you know, acquisitions like Dynatrace and even uh, uh, StackDriver, which uh, Izzy Aziri and Dan Belcher I had on the podcast recently, which <laughs> they're off to amazing things with Mabel, right? So uh, what I thought was impressive was A, the track record of, success uh, and a lot of these companies going public um, and you know you were part of the the Midas list from Forbes three times which is you know the top investors um, so, so how did you pick winners that were of this size and magnitude I mean we could focus on one right the one that pe- people mo- know the best LinkedIn like like how did you know Reed Hoffman or like, how did, like, how did that investment come together? Uh, well, that one in particular, there was a little extra help. My brother was the CEO. So, uh, so I used to think of LinkedIn early days as a spamming engine. And then Reed, uh, who I did know called, uh, my brother who was running a company in uh, San Francisco. And he said, I'd like to talk to you. And, and, uh, my brother, Dan was like, well, I'm not sure I want to go to, I said, Dan, take the meeting. It was my lesson from the experience I shared with you about Commerce One. And I said, take the meeting, just go hear him out. And uh, by the time he showed up there, um, you know, they had already done all the blind references on him and said, no, we we actually want to hire you to run the company. And what we need is we need a business model. And so Dan is the person who built the four businesses of LinkedIn, he, he was the guy that actually structured them, built them and, and established them and scaled them. Um, so by the time uh, we evaluated it, uh, there was there was a little bit of backlash uh, because I priced the company at a billion dollars. And, uh, you know, the, the joke in one of the venture wires was, boy, I wish I had a brother would price me at a billion dollars. <laughs> by the time Microsoft kindly in the end kindly bought it, it was 26 billion. So I think everybody was pretty happy. That's right. This is why I love doing this podcast. I, I pick up all these little fun facts. Your brother is CEO of LinkedIn. Who knew? Um, well, let's focus now on Turbonomics. So uh, at some point, you you decided that, wow, this is a company that, um, you know, at first, you, you know, you were involved early on uh, when they were VM Turbo and like the early, early stages. So what was it about uh, the, the the founders that had you convinced that this was an amazing opportunity to not only like invest in, but to, to join and, and get back into an operating role. Yeah, so th- this was a uh, an example where I, I'd actually looked at the space first. So again, I, I'm a big believer in sector investing. Mm-hmm. And I looked at a virtualization as a space early on and, and it was um, it was growing enormously well, but there was also a um, 999 pound gorilla. Uh, and I was concerned that everybody I looked at, they were all doing things like physical to virtual migration called P2B or um, bully VMs or rogue VMs and all these things, but they were all very tactical and they were all going to die at the hands of this uh, hegemon in the space. And so I thought there had to be a different way uh, to tackle it and create some fundamental IP because me too software is always a hard bet, but particularly on someone else's platform, very, very hard. And so, um, so I had remembered a company uh, that, um, 
that this fellow Shmuel Klieger, Dr. Shmuel Klieger, our, our founder, um, had started, and it was called System Management Arts or SMARTS, and uh, it was out of White Plains. And I, I thought, well, I can't invest in any of these companies. I want to be in this space. There's going to be enormous growth. So I think what I'll do is I'll go see if Shmuel could take the concepts that he had, which were very impressive concepts from his days of smarts and apply them to this space. He was building an application for uh, radiologists and, uh, and I, I tried to um, misdirect him or not, you know, to divert him into the idea of coming back into IT where he had been so successful before he sold the company to EMC for just under $300 million. And, um, and he said, no, we're very structured on this. And he goes, do you want to do the healthcare?" And I said, no, frankly, no, thank you. I'm, I'm going to focus in this area. I believe in sector investing, explain why. And I said, but if you change your mind, give me a call. And uh, we had a, a wonderful visit. But about a month later, he calls me up and he says, well, I've met my first radiologist. He goes, what's your idea in IT? <laughs> and, and, uh, and so that led to, uh, you know, we have to figure out how to do something in the virtualization. And then the genius that he had, and, and he had uh, four co-founders, but the genius was we could actually turn the whole industry upside down by allowing the demand, in this case, application workloads, to pick the infrastructure resources on which they run themselves and literally make them smart and choose the, the uh, resources in exactly the right amounts because you understand demand in exactly the right order down through the application, the virtual layer, the physical and exactly the right time because demand changes over time. But if you can do the right amounts, the right order and the right time, you can actually do things like assure the performance of those application workloads. You can, you can enforce policies, you know, HA policies or DR or business continuity or, or um, you know, data sovereignty policies in real time and all the time. And then on top of everything else, you could make them pay for themselves in about three months. And that was just such a crazy value prop, uh, the performance assurance, policy compliance, and cost effectiveness. If you could do that, we were onto something big. Then the question is, can you size that market? And if you saw the sizing, we just, we sort of talked, it's a huge market. And, uh, and that was the, uh, the birth of, uh, of Turbonomic. And uh, over time, the, 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 what you guys have been doing has evolved with kind of different stages of cloud computing, right? Oh, absolutely. So we started out on premise, um, managing virtualization and teaching people how to share an environment. When you virtualize, you share it, right? Okay. The next wave though came when people started looking at the, the public cloud vendors and it started with Amazon and now Microsoft. And we hold dual competencies uh, for migration and for um, uh, third-party management on Amazon and, and Azure has taken even further and is now reselling us for assessments and migration plans. And, um, but both are, are different, very different environments from the more slower growth on-premise environment. And so we can uniquely stand here as the single data, excuse me, single data model with pure analytics that can manage your workloads or allow them to manage themselves even better on-premise, in Azure, or in AWS, all three wherever you choose to run them. And that's an enormous statement. So yes, it's evolved. Um, we believe it will continue to evolve and we're actually standing uh, in, in harm's way. <laughs> We've already built the next generation of what people call microservices or cloud native, which refers to containers and schedulers. And, um, and our technology is able to tell you when to scale up or scale out. And then more importantly, 
when you do that, how to interact with the virtualization layer. So does it run in the same VM or do you clone the VM as well? And then down to the IaaS layer, does it run in the same region and zone or in another one? Uh, or in the case of on-prem, in the same host and cluster or in another one? So those are the kinds of decisions that are multidimensional that you can frankly only do through software. And so it's with the evolution of cloud computing, it just sounds like running your infrastructure is just getting incredibly complex. Um, absolutely. So think about this. If, if you look at running a traditional uh, physical environment, there were many people that didn't make the, the move and the skill, skills gap, if you will, to uh, the virtual layer. And that went for 20 years, 1997 to the, to the present. Excuse me, 1999, uh, 1998 to the present, 20 years of, of largely VMware-led. Mm -hmm. Then the next wave, though, started probably back uh, about 15 years ago with Amazon and ultimately to AWS. And the whole idea of let's actually host it for you in the IaaS or infrastructure as a service that now they and uh, Microsoft Azure own so strongly, about 91% market share between the two. Um, the next one will be the platform as a service. But with each one of these uh, evolutions is another company, another skill set, another technology, another business model. You went from fixed to variable. Mm -hmm. And and so, uh, you know, people are having a harder and harder time keeping up. And we've also, during that time, moved from a very hardware-centric in the early days to a software-centric mindset, now to a software and services-centric mindset. So it's not, it's not just the skills gaps, the entire orientation of the people. And so our fundamental belief is that um, being able to bring modern workload management and focusing on the workloads, which traverse all of those environments, um, enormously simplifies it. It traverses those multiple different uh, evolutions of technology. And when you use automation properly, as we do, then you actually can also bridge a lot of the skills gap because you can get a lot more uh, workloads managed by fewer people if uh, they understand how to do it in each of those separate environments. So Ben, to actually pull this off from an engineering point of view, it sounds incredibly complex. So uh, Talk to me about like the engineering team at, at, at Turbonomic, because I imagine it's uh, you know it's it's a very gifted group of uh, engineers. Uh, it's it's uh, probably one of the best uh, engineering teams with which I've been uh, associated. Um, starts with the the founding team from Smart, um, but then uh, they boy they've recruited just wonderful people about 140 150 people spread between uh, New York White Plains, uh, New York Grand Central. Um, uh, Boston, Toronto, and even a few in uh, Moscow, about a dozen uh, engineers in Moscow. And, um, and it's really uh, a very, very uh, sophisticated group. There's, I think, close to 40 uh, PhDs in that group and, uh, and fantastic intellectual thinkers. And they're pushing the edge on, uh, on, you know, people talk about AI, artificial intelligence. These guys are way beyond uh, the talk and they're actually implementing it so much so that we, the acronym we use is that workloads become self-managing anywhere in real time. And that acronym is SMART. And so they're building SMART workloads that can think for themselves, move and continuously place themselves start and stop themselves, and even size themselves, scale up and scale out and scale down um, uniquely. 
And so nobody is, is no one else is at that level. We, we currently sit on about 12 patents issued and another eight patents pending. And, um, and you know, the, 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 one of the most fun uh, things running a startup is to be able to go and sit with the engineers and, and hear their stories, their thoughts and, and their ideas and how to change the world. What are you thinking as far as the future of Turbonomic? Because uh, like, if you look at your investments, a lot of them went public and they went, you know, kind of the long ball. Um, and when you just talked about the defensibility of your team, your product, your market, you know, it's, it's very hard to build what you guys have built. So what's the future, you know, thinking for Turbonomic? Uh, well, I think the way you, you think about it, and I've, I've had a, uh, a fair amount of time in venture, both as an operator and an um, investor. So I, I've learned that forecasts are always tricky. <laughs> um, <laughs> but what you do is you say, if I build this the right way for the long haul and don't take a shortcut, um, then, then great things will happen. And so whether it's a, an IPO or an acquisition, I, I can't quite control. Anybody who thinks it's only one doesn't have a board of directors and outside investors. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, and so, so my message back is, I believe we have something of sustainable, durable value, ma major value. I mean, customers seem to love it. There's an awful lot of them. Um, they, they buy and buy again. Um, and our job is to make sure that we are realizing on that promise and that in the course of doing so, we're doing it in a capital efficient manner and frankly, having fun along the way. Now, for other entrepreneurs that are going through uh, the process of building their own company and they finally hit product market fit and it's you know, scaling, you know, hyper growth like Turbonomic has gone through and that you've witnessed at multiple other companies. Like, what are the lessons that you share with entrepreneurs that are going through that hyper growth phase? Wow. Um, <laughs> there's, there are so many, uh, one is to, to really, uh, assess, uh, as you're scaling, uh, the quality of the managers in each of their roles, because, uh, quite often, uh, the operations can exceed the capabilities of the incumbent. And the problem is that that can cause enormous amounts of, um, dissatisfaction down in the ranks. And so you need to be attentive to that at all, all times. So that one I would say is important Two is to make sure that you're not just looking at the financial metrics on the, on a aggregate, you know, sort of revenue bookings kind of basis, but you're actually looking at unit economics to make sure that you're not overheating or frankly, wasting money because that's causes uh, a lot of dilution. And then third is, uh, to make sure that you stay humble because, um, if you don't, you are winding yourself up for a very big embarrassment. <laughs> so stay humble. And when things are when things are scaling, it, it can feel great, but you you gotta you gotta keep an eye on on day to day, and uh, and make sure that you know um, you're still doing the 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 normal course operations and not overshooting uh, in terms of investing too far ahead of revenue or um, where the current market and customer base is. There's multiple ways that you can go to market with uh, you know, a technology company. So how should one think about sales models? Like how, you know, you know, there's different ways of going about it. So like, what would you advise founders that are trying to figure out you know, how do we actually sell our product? Well, I think it starts actually slightly differently. Start, start with um, the part of the market uh, segment that you're planning to address and serve. And how do you do that with the most 
um, success on delivering what you promised you were selling them in the first place. So there are plenty. I mean, this is a subject that's near to dear to me because no matter what you spend developing a product, you'll spend a multiple uh, uh, marketing and selling it. Right. So, um, so you really want to think about what's your target initial target market segment and be maniacal about your focus on that segment and make sure that you're able to actually deliver the promise of what you sold, right? Not just software drop ship, but, but truly like, um, all the way to the promised outcome, which is really, uh, the most important thing you're selling. Um, so I think that it's um, a little bit of pick the part of the market or the vertical that you're targeting and then make sure you're you're able to deliver what you say you're going to deliver. And then whether that uh, is a direct sale, an internet sale, a telesale, um, there are enormous number of variables that would affect you there, including, by the way, the complexity of the deployment, the trial, uh, and the proof of value. Uh, you've hired lots of people throughout your career. Um, how do you evaluate talent? Boy, there's uh, it's a little bit of you. You obviously are looking for the uh, the person who's got the right skill set, the intellectual capability and capacity, the drive, um, wanted to prove themselves, um, and they come in all shapes and sizes and, and locations. I think the biggest thing is do they understand understand enough about the customer's journey that you're serving with this capability or can they get there fast enough to matter but if i put a third ramp of person coming into a domain and having to learn the software and having to learn uh, the customer behavior and then start to build a pipeline i'm just making uh, the probabilities of success lower so I'm, I guess I would say uh, I'm a big believer in sector investing. I'm also a big believer in sector investing in human capital in the sense that you know what you're getting into and you can uh, short circuit a few of those learning curves because the learning curve can be the hardest thing. Um, beyond that, obviously, you got the honesty, integrity. And one of the things I liked most about LinkedIn was the ability to do um, blind references on people because I believe it will shorten the feedback loop. And, um, and I think that's enormously valuable to the world at a large, because, you know, if you, if you go through a traditional recruiting cycle and you go and you bring someone in and they meet with, you know, all of your staff. And at the end of the day, you say, give me three references and it's your mom, your dad, and your grandma, <laughs> you know, you're not really getting a read on the person, um, right. until it's too late. And so this to me is the most important thing is to really, um, leverage the value of references mm -hmm. in an in-depth way um, to make sure you know that the person you met and that your team met and that you've all coalesced around and believed to be the right person actually proves out in a, um, in a third-party evaluation way as well. And so I just, to me, the most important thing is the reference. Got it. Uh, Turbonomic is obviously growing, scaling, hiring. So are you hiring across the board or... Yeah, <laughs> um, we are hiring across the board. Um, I would say the, the biggest areas would be uh, um, both enterprise and velocity sales roles. Um, our, our, we've just been through an enormous amount of hiring on uh, technical account managers and resident engineers. And uh, one of the biggest areas of focus right now is going to be on uh, developers with a specific cloud DNA. And by that, I'm talking, you know, people with a, a DevOps background or a, uh, a high-level high, en high level engineer, but with real cloud exposure and experience. 
so in, in this market, like that's obviously a, a, I would imagine a tough skill set to find. <laughs> yeah, it, well, it's not hard to find. If you want to know who the cloud people are, they're the ones with the bags under their eyes. And they're so tired, <laughs> they're working hard. Um, but, but I think your point is, your point stands, they're in high demand. Right. Um, we are obviously uh, a, a fairly unique uh, 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 hirer or employer in this area because of what the level that we're taking the technology. And I think a lot of people are pretty excited about the exposure they get here. You, you, it literally is on-prem, off-prem with the two dominant cloud platforms. And then on top of that, the, uh, the whole generation of cloud native. And we look forward and we say, listen, given what we figured out and, and our ability to manage the workloads, multiple generations of workloads in each direction, you can extrapolate that all the way out to people that have interest in edge computing, function as a service or Lambda, or even out to the uh, Internet of Things. I mean, if you want to have a little thought experiment, think about where we're going with cloud. And you're going to see now a whole bunch of edge-based applications that grow in, in complexity and sophistication over the next, say, five to 10 years, where actually you can't afford the latency of resourcing them all the way back to a core data center. What that means is that the next generation data center effectively is going to be cell towers because they're out on the edge, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that means I have to have compute, memory, storage, and networking on the cell tower. <laughs> and given that I'm willing to bet you'll agree with me on this, that we're not going to put people on every single cell tower in America right. or the world, that we're going to need workload automation software mm -hmm. like Turbonomic to be able to manage and resource those workloads on the edge, as well as in the core, all in real time. Make those workloads smart and they can run anywhere. And that's the exciting part. So we're very excited about the sort of tailwind that we see and the growth in the number of workloads um, and where they're going to run. And that, that means, you know, again, core, meaning on-prem in your current data center, hybrid or multi-cloud, meaning your public, today AWS and, and Azure, but candidly, more than more, there'll be more multi-clouds and then you'll get all the way out to the edge. And I think that'll be a, a fun and exciting world. Such a massive, massive opportunity. Pretty big. Uh, you're obviously very busy outside of work. What do you like to do? There are a huge number of things I like to do. Work seems <laughs> uh, uh, high among them recently. But uh, no, I, I mean, I, I love outdoor time with the family. And um, so we have, uh, um, my Jenny and I have four kids. Um, they're all uh, team-based sports players. So um, anything from field hockey and football in the fall to uh, ice hockey in the, in the winter and, and uh, lacrosse in the spring. So there's a lot of uh, sideline cheering time. Mm -hmm. And then we do a lot of outdoor time in terms of hiking, hunting, fishing, uh, that kind of stuff, uh, both in uh, upstate New Hampshire and upstate New York in the Adirondacks. So here's another fun fact that I discovered. So uh, do you still co-manage with your two brothers of uh, a former dairy farm with 11 American bison? We're up to 15. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's, in, uh, it's in upstate New York, Clinton, New York, and right next door to Hamilton College and down the mm -hmm. road from Colgate. And uh, for anyone interested on your viewership, it's called www.hardingfarm.com. That's H-A-R-D-I-N-G, farm.com. Very cool. Well, Ben, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate you sharing all your words and wisdom and you know, giving us a deeper dive into Turbonomic. All right, Keith. Well, thank you. It was a great question. So super job on VentureFizz. Thank you.
Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.